Hello, and welcome to Off Me Block. I'm Stephen Duffy. I'm a Dublin-based author, and I would like, over the next 30 episodes, to read to you from my three books, Stakes and Stout, Boned and Rolled, and Done and Dusted, collectively known as Off Me Block. They tell the tale of erstwhile Dublin butcher Tommy Costello. Now, before we get started, let me tell you a little thing or two about Tommy Costello. Tommy is a very garish Dublin character who has been through a lot of scrapes in his life. And as he recounts those scrapes, uses the most graphic language and the harshest of Dublin slang. So if that is not your thing, perhaps off me block may not be for you. If you don't mind your ears being verbally assaulted with harsh Dublin slang and graphic language, stay tuned. We're about to start with the first book, Stakes and Stout. Book one, Stakes and Stout. Chapter one. The Little Bollocks. The Little Bollocks. Now, you're not going to bloody well believe this, but for the first six or seven years of me life, I actually thought that was me name. Because it's all me ma or da ever called me. It was seldom the day that the following were not to be heard in our flat. Where's the Little Bollocks? Or, who did that? Who do you think it was? It was the Little Bollocks. Or one of me personal favourites. Why was Father Rafferty here this morning? He caught the little bollocks robbing coppers from the share collection last Sunday. The little bollocks. I'll kill him. The belligerent little bollocks. And I must admit, in all fairness, that if you were to force me hand, I would indeed have to admit that I was just that. A belligerent little bollocks. I had no time for authority, and it in turn had absolutely no time for me. Jesus, I'll never forget the time me dad told me to wipe the smile off me face. So I did just that with the back of me hand. That was me first experience of powered flight, I tell you. I went flying backwards across the kitchen with the power the wallopy gave me. Christ, me face looked like the Ulster flag for a week. Still, I had it coming, I suppose. I was always pushing it, daring it. Yep, I was a right little bollocks, all right. I was born Thomas Dylan Costello on February 2nd, 1963, to me parents, Ronnie and Doreen Costello. The old lad was a disgruntled butcher and a raging alco. He'd go through a bottle of duller colour whiskey a week and me ma always used to say to him that it would eventually kill him, to which he'd reply, well then, I'll die drunk and happy. Me ma, Doreen Costello, knee sharky, was a sweet and contrite soul with a penchant for sugar donuts, sweet afton cigarettes and baiting the living bejesus out of our kids with anything that came to hand. I was the seventh child in a brood that would eventually be 13. Smack bang in the middle. There was that many of us squeezed into the three-bedroom flat in the city centre that the neighbourhood kids took to calling us the Bursted Johnny family. And it kind of stuck for a while. So unofficially, for the first few years of me life, I more or less went by the name Little Bollocks Bursted Johnny. I thought it was deadly, kind of like being named after an Indian brave or something. Although I might have thought that me new name was only the Bizzo, me dad was not of the same opinion. More than one was the night he spent in a cell in Store Street Garda Station for defending the family name with a flick knife, a wheel brace or a cavity block, whichever was handiest at the time. Lord rest him, he was a small and wiry man, but by Jesus, his size belied his strength and speed. He could go from zero to fucking mental in the blink of an eye, and by Christ, when that happened, you'd do well to be somewhere else. Which was seldom the case for myself. By 10 years of age, I felt like Superman. So much experience I had of flying from one part of the flat to the other after pushing that man just one inch too far. As I grew up, 
I always liked to think that out of the 13 of us, me dad picked on me because he had a special fondness for me, that I was his favourite, and he wanted to make sure that I was ready for this shitty world by stealing me for the reality of life, by beating on me the whole time. Well, that's what I used to think in anyways. It was a whole boy named Sue complex kind of thing, you know. As I grew older, though, I came to realise that the old fucker just couldn't stand the sight of me, and that he found the urge to slap me around a bit too hard to resist. It will be many, many years before I discover the motivation behind the old lad's unstinting dedication to the purpose of making me life and live in hell. And I'll get to that in due time. Jesus, I'm sorry, there I am rabbiting on about the old fella like this is the fucking Jerry Springer show or Oprah or something. Sorry about that. Anyways, as I was telling you, I came into this world on a cold and rainy February morning in 1963 up there in the rotunda. Me ma, the Lord of mercy on her, always said that I more or less squirted out of her, so easy was the labour. And she knew from that moment on that I was, in her own words now, probably going to be a right little fucker. You see, the other six before me nearly killed her in the labour, but they all turned out to be little angels that never gave her or the old lad a minute's hassle. So she knew there was a price to pay for the easy labour, you see. And who was I to disappoint me, mammy? So in terms of antagonising me long-suffering parents, I started early, probably far too early. Me first recollection of a serious chastisement was not from me parents, but from old baldy Mr Catchpole who lived in the flat beneath us. I couldn't have been more than five at the time when that fucker nearly tore the ear off me when he caught me asking his youngest daughter, Dolores, who was 12 at the time, to pull down our pants so I could have a look at our messages. He fucking battered me, the old fuck. Bastard seemed to enjoy it too, the bollocks. Now, there was always something to be doing in and around the flats, good, bad or indifferent. If there was any action to be had, you can bet your arse that yours truly was a part of it. I remember one morning in December 1972, it was about a week before Christmas and being unwilling to wait for school to finish up officially, myself and Larry O'Neill, or Larry the Leg as he was known, were on the Mitch. We were hiding out on the roof of our flats just trying to pass the time till we could stop freezing the nuts off ourselves and go home. It was only ten to nine this stage and we'd only been up there since half eight. Larry was a year younger than me so he always looked up to me and he was always to be counted on if there was some mischief to be had. You see for Larry life was not easy. Jesus, his life made me look like Peter Pan, for God's sake. Larry was fat. He had red hair. He was a born-again Christian. And to say that he was a little bit camp is to say that JFK got a little bit shot. All of these unfortunate traits made sure that poor old Larry went home from school more times than I can recall with the waistband of his jocks around about chest high. And that was on the good days. Getting up to shenanigans with Larry was always a little bit special. You see, Larry was barely allowed to breathe. His mother was ridiculously overprotective of him, practically to the point of obsession, and his father was a devout Bible basher who believed that all the world, bar his little family, were fucked when the rapture arrived. So leading such a goody two-shoes astray always filled me with a smug satisfaction. Anyway, on this particular morning there was a couple of inches of snow on the ground, and down on the street below us the traffic was struggling to make it up the hill that ran alongside the flats. We were keeping ourselves occupied by hortling stony snowballs at any poor fucker who happened to walk past. Next minute, this car comes fucking flying down the road towards the top of the hill. Now I can't remember the make nor the model. All I can recall is that it was blue and it was absolutely bleeding merring along. When it came to the crest of the hill, the driver must have had a shift fit because she jammed on the brakes. But it was too late. 
The car went skidding down the hill, spinning like a ballerina. Well, I thought this was the funniest thing since I'd seen two dogs on the estate stuck together at the arse, and old Mrs. Collins was battering them with a brush and cursing the rat of God on them for shame in the neighbourhood. Anyways, around about halfway down the hill, the driver finally regained control of the car, and more than likely her bladder too, and was about to continue merrily on her way when enter Tommy Costello truant. Without even realising what I was doing, I pegged the biggest snowball I had down from the roof. As it left me hand, I had a very brief recollection of having put a rock the size of the Hope fucking diamond in it, and Jesus, I felt sick. I watched helpless as it fell faster and faster and faster. Well, wait till I tell you, it ploughed through the windscreen, and the car went off all haywire again before slamming it into a telegraph pole. That was all I saw of it. In less than a heartbeat, I was gone. I grabbed my school bag and I tore back down through the flats and was sitting at my school desk by five past nine. Poor old Larry never knew what happened. He watched as the chaos torn to bedlam, frozen to the spot. When passers boy looked up to the roof, it was poor Larry's fat face that was staring back at them, his chubby little mouth agape in a little o of wonder, delight, and more than likely the sickening reality that he was going to get pinched for this one. In fairness to him, he stuck to the age-old code of the flats and never snitched. He never even mentioned me name to the cops. I'd gotten away with it, scoff-free. Mind you, Larry never spoke to me again, ever. I suppose that's what being grounded for a year will do to you. That turned out to be my last adventure with Larry, but there had been many, many more before that. The time I broke his leg is chief among my favourites, I must admit. And if I ever get the chance to tell you about it, well, pal, I surely will. My childhood wasn't all that bad, mind you. Between the baitings and the misery of school, there were some good times. Take, for example, the fine days during the summer, when the sun would be belting down so hard that you could take your pick of any of the melted chewing gum on the street. My ma used to take all 13 of us on the bus out to Sandy Cove, over there on the south side for the swim, and Jesus, I used to love it. I never had a pair of my own swim trunks, so I always walked into the water backwards, uh, my hands held over my arse so as to hide the skid marks in my beige jocks. It only took a good 10 minutes out before I could come out again, confident that the sea had gotten rid of all traces of the skiddies, and I could play in the sand, content that the marks in me jocks were not the topic of conversation between all the poshies. The kids from that area used to give us a terrible time, I tell you. They'd call us all sorts of names. There was one occasion, I was only three or four at the time, when Dominic, my eldest brother, had had enough of it. This pair of right fuckers with ducktail hairdos and skin-tight jeans were hurling bleeding dogs abuse at us. They were calling us townies and scumbags in between pegging stones at us. I mean, mammy with two babbies in her arms, the fucks. Even at four, I was not going to have any of that, but Domo beat me to it. If me sums are correct, he was only 14 at the time and nothing but a white streak of bone with muscles like kinks in fishing line. But he was a ballsy little bastard. I'll give him that. He stood up to the pair of them. Well, when I say stood up to them, what I mean is that he wandered off down the beach, found the heftiest piece of driftwood he could carry, and then circled back behind them and battered the living fuck out of them. There was blood everywhere. Jesus, it was great. Absolutely brilliant. My ma was terribly upset by the whole affair, though. You see, that's where she came from originally. Well, it was dorky, but the same neck of the woods, if you know what I mean. Ah, yeah, me ma was from good stock. There's a little bit of blue blood running in my veins, I tell you. Her parents basically disowned her when she married me dad. She was only 19 when she hooked up with him in 1953, and he was a full 10 years older than her, the, the, the dirty bollocks. 
So, so as far as my granny and granddad were concerned, he was far too old for and not from the right part of the city. And they told her as much. But love is blind and lust is deaf. So there you go. Within a month, she'd moved into a tenement up in Stony Batter with him. And by Christmas the same year, she was preggers with the aforementioned Domo. She continued to pop out a nipper every 10 or 11 months for the next 14 years. Me granddad begged her not to marry the old man. He even threatened to cut her out of the money, which by all accounts was a fair few bob. But she went ahead and did it anyways. That was that. She never saw the family again. As she got older, she told me that she regretted it, you know, because she had lost so much. In an attempt to console her, I told her, sure, you'd always have us, to which she replied, not the family, you stupid idiot, the money. I never mired her more than I did that day. In fairness, though, the granny and granddad that I never met sent us kids presents every single Christmas, and every single year the old lad would hoosh them down the rubber chute in a drunken rage. He would say that his kids would never be under a compliment to those Church of Ireland Sosnocks, his words. On one of the few occasions that I actually dared attempt to hold a half-decent conversation with the man, I was 12 or 13 at the time, I asked him why he always tossed the presents. He told me that he didn't want his kids getting gifts from anyone who looked down on us. And that's how I came to believe that Mr. and Mrs. Mooney, who lived above me, were my grandparents. Wasn't the sharpest knife now, was I? Although I'd remained a little bollocks for many, many years in the family circle, my street name was to change around about Christmas 1974. Could have been 75, I'm, I'm not sure. Once again, it was in a roundabout, funny sort of way, me dad's fault again. That Christmas, never dare granny sent us kids a selection box each, which dad promptly fired down the rubbish chute. Fuck this, says I to myself, oh, I'm having none of it. I was a greedy little pig, you see, and Fry's Turkish delight was me heroin, and I would not be denied it. So first thing next morning, I snuck out of bed. No mean feat when you share it with four others and sleep against the wall, let me tell you. I made me way downstairs to the basement of the flats. I was absolutely determined to have me chocolate, and a dirty skip wasn't going to stand between a selection box and me. So into the skip I goes, a fancy swan dive thrown in for good measure. Mother of sweet divine Jesus, the smell was inhuman. I waded through tons of foul-smelling crap, the likes of which you could never imagine. Loving divine God, there were dirty nappies, used sanitary towels, turkey carcasses, and bags and bags of only God knows what in there. My eyes were watering. I wanted to puke, and to top it all off, wasn't I only standing under the fucking chute when the delivery arrived? Jesus wept, I was destroyed. But the one thing Tommy Costello is, and that's determined. Despite the stink and the rot, me chops were drooling from just thinking of the gorgeous Turkish delight. Twenty minutes later, bingo. I'd found me prize. I pulled out one of the boxes from under a black bag, scrambled out of the skip and collapsed on the floor, clutching that box like Moses with the Ten Commandments. I was totally destroyed, but I didn't give a shit. Me pants were soaked with various different boil-smelling fluids. Me face was grimy with sweat and snot, and there were pieces of leftover dinner tangled in me hair, but I was like a pig in shit. If the good Lord had have appeared there, and I don't think I'd have given him a second glance, but it wasn't God that appeared at that moment. Ah, no. Having duly sanitised me first bar by making a sign of the cross in the air with it, I had just chomped me first bite when who do I see walk into the basement? Only the smarmiest little bollocks ever to wear shoe leather, Alan Wade. I froze, hoping that he hadn't seen me, but the fucker had. Before I could say a word, he was gone, tearing up the stairwell and screaming from the tops of his lungs. The bursted Johnny family eat from a skip. Over and over, he screamed. The people poured out from their flats to see what all the commotion was about. And Wade happily told them what was going on. 
With no other way, I had to walk back to our flat, past all the jeering huns that lived in the building. An incriminating ring of chocolate around my lips only added to their joy, the fucks. By that evening, everyone was calling me Skippy Costello. And let me tell you something, that one stuck for a long, long time. Of course, by the time my dad found out, he was well-oiled, and I had to let him warm his hands on my face a few dozen times. Now, we might not have had any contact with the family on Mammy's side, but by God, my father's side more than made up for it. Jesus, there was millions of them, and they were all the fucking image of each other. There was that many of them that we kids could never remember who was who, so we gave them names of our own. There was Uncle Giza, a bum, whose only utterances were Giza Smoke, Giza Loan of a Few Bob, Giza Point. Then there was Auntie Uncle, a woman with more facial hair than a Bible story and four arms like Popeye. Uncle Wetpatch was a stinky old fucker who lived in the same pair of trousers, a terrible dampness forever present in the crotch department. Auntie Droopy Tits was a bitch. She never wore a bra, ever, and as such, by the time she was in her fifties, her ditties hung down to her waist like tennis balls in a pair of tights. Jesus, it's a wonder we all turned out anyway decent given the gene pool the father swimmers were doing the backstroke in. Uncle No Tongue was another favourite. An unfortunate accident with a push lawnmower when he was 11 saw to it that his last understandable words were give us half a crown and I bet you I'll lick the blade. Words which were followed very quickly afterwards with he was fucking cry me fucking dumb. Still, he never let it get him down. He was a great man to hum a tune at any sing-song, I can tell you that. But me all-time favourite was Uncle Grey Crack. My Jesus, he was a fucking madman. He'd be up for anything, and you'd never know where you'd end up or what you'd end up doing when he called around. He was me dad's youngest brother, and you'd think they'd have got on with him being the babby and all, but they didn't. Me old lad just didn't seem to have much time for him for one reason or another. Uncle Grey Crack was a favourite with us kids, though. He'd usually arrive unannounced, and it could be any time, day or night. We'd fly into a ladder when we'd hear the rumble of his Honda 50 as it drove across the cobbles in the courtyard. My God, he'd throw that bike around like I don't know what. He was always popping wheelies, pulling skids and doing jumps that to us kids looked to defy gravity. He made us call him Good Canood because he said he was way better than Evil Knievel and Jesus, we thought that was the bloody bizzo. There was one time during the summer of 1978 when he came flying in through the archway to the court, popping a wheelie so he was, bombing along like Christ on a horse. Now I'm telling you, he was blemming and wearing nothing but a t-shirt and a pair of cut jean shorts and nothing else. No helmet, no shoes, no fear. The poor old bollocks never saw the loose cobble that me and Charlie Mack had been trying to dig up because we were told there was a brasser's G-string under it. Well, Jesus, he went arse over tit into the air and hit the ground like a slab of meat before going skidding all the way across the courtyard to Josie Devlin's front door. Not since Father Rafferty set fire to himself with the Advent candles at midnight mass the Christmas before had we all laughed so fucking much. Anyways, he went barreling along, cursing and screaming as he went, the mad joke. We legged it over, expecting him to be dead and all, but he was grand. Mind you, his legs were that skint and full of pebbles that they looked like the inside of a watermelon. He got up, dusted himself down and went off up to ours, not to be seen for several Bacardis. Now let me tell you, when he came back out a while later, Jesus, that's when all the crack started. Down he comes, belting out a Sinatra tune like he was the man himself, fagging his hand and three sheets to the wind. His legs looked a little better now, more like burnt jam at this stage. Still, there wasn't a bother on him. Who wants to go on me bike, he shouts at the top of his voice. Christ's sake, he might as well have been shouting free heroin, the amount of fuckers that appeared out of nowhere. And that, my friend, is how we invented motor skates. You see, Dopey here thought it would be a great idea for Uncle Greycrack to tow me behind the bike on me roller skates. 
Now, 40 miles an hour might not sound fast. It might not feel fast when you're all cozy inside your nice warm car. But let me tell you something. When you're 14 years old with legs as thin as cheap spaghetti and you're hurtling down the road on wheels designed to do no more than 10, let me tell you, 40 miles an hour might as well be the speed of fucking light. I couldn't see a thing for the wind. Me mouth was full of insects and me cheap plastic wheels were shuddering like a bollock naked Eskimo without an igloo. It was only a minute or two into me adventure when the L wheels shattered and flew everywhere. The poxy axles dug into the soft tarmac and came to the most abrupt of stops. Of course, this was not readily communicated to me body, which bravely tried to carry on at the aforementioned speed, only to be slammed face first into the road. Jesus wept, me delf shattered and me owl shrone went to the back of me head via me face. Loving lantern and Jesus, I was that destroyed that come the following Halloween, I dressed up as Quasimodo and I didn't need a bleeding mask for the love of fuck. Ah yeah, Uncle Greycrack, despite the odd row with me old lad, called around to ours many, many a time after that, before the visit stopped all of a sudden for no reason. If I remember correctly, it was the night before my 18th birthday, loving divine Mary, they went for each other bald-headed that night. We didn't see him for a long time after that, but he eventually... Ah, here now, I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. I'll get back to that in a while. Oh, here. I was nearly forgetting to tell you about how Larry became known as Larry the Leg. As you may recall, it was because of his gammy leg, mostly, that he took the rap for me stone-throwing adventures. Come to think of it, I rightly fucked that poor young lad's life up. And it's not about to get any better with what I'm about to tell you. If I ever see him again, and if I have a few quid, I'll have to buy him a couple of pints. Anyways, we were only nippers at the time. I was no older than six, which will put poor Larry at only five. So there I am, a blistered in May morning, and I'm rummaging around the back of the H. Williams supermarket when I finds a piece of rope. Like a blinding light from heaven, the idea of a new swing hits me, and off I goes in search of Larry. Now, as trees were a rarity in our area, if you wanted a swing, it had to be hung out of a lamppost. And it just so happened that good old Larry was the best pole shimmier that ever walked this earth. After finding him, we duly set off from the court and headed out onto the main road where the poles were taller. You had to dodge the traffic with each swing, but sure, that was half the fun. So up Larry goes like a Jamaican looking for coconuts while well, I wait at the bottom keeping sketch for the cops and trying to tie the other end of the rope to one of me ma's brush handles. Out of nowhere, a grasshopper the size of me Mickey lands on the court beside me. Before I can even flinch, it's up in the air again, lands on the pole and disappears down a hole in the service cover. At that age, I had an unswerving dedication to torturing insects. Jesus, how have I not been locked up? Anyway, a piece of owl aluminium was not going to deprive me of the pleasure of pulling that fucker's legs off. By this stage, Larry had just reached the top of the pole and was making his way out onto the overhanging part where he was going to tie the rope. I had a quick sketch around and saw that all was grand, so I set about trying to get that six-legged little bollocks. I shoved the brush handle into the hole and wiggled it about a bit. Now what happened inside that lamppost, I'll never know. But from that day to this, I'm thankful that that brush pole was made of wood and not one of those fancy steel ones. There was an unmerciful bang, a big blue flash and a ton of smoke poured out from under the cover. Thanks be to God, all I got was a gob full of smoke. Larry, on the other hand, wasn't so lucky. He took off like a fucking rocket. Too shocked and stunned to even scream, the poor bastard. I didn't see him land. I was gone like the clappers down the road. I flashed a glance back once and Jesus, the fucker was still in the air, only just coming back down past the perch where he had been. That's how high the poor little fucker went. 
For years afterwards, old Dottie Riley, who lived on the fifth floor, couldn't tell the story without pissing herself. There she was at the kitchen sink, peeling spuds, when Larry went fucking flying past her window like a spiky-haired bullet. Poor Larry came back down to earth with such a fucking wallop that one of his legs, I presume the first one to hit, was broken in six different places, and as a result was three inches shorter than the other one for the rest of his days. Sad, sorry fucker had to wear one of those corrective platform shoes to even his keel, and that, I'm sorry to say, is how Larry became known as Larry the Leg. She wasn't at his own fault. He should have held on tighter, the fucking idiot. So as you can probably tell, I had, to say the least and be the kindest, a very colourful childhood. I like to think that I am what I am today, a little bit touched, but fun all the same, because of it. It wasn't all that bad, I suppose, and I'm sure there was many a poor fucker out there who had it worse than me. I mean, we always had a roof over our heads, shoes on our feet, presents at Christmas, and thanks to fast hands and oversized work wellies, the Costellos dined on the finest steak ever to fall from a butcher's block. Hey, thanks for joining me here on Off Me Block. I hope you enjoyed chapter one. Be sure to tune in next week for chapter two, School Days, A Catholic Education. You can find Off Me Block here on anchor.fm, Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.